Thank you for joining us in worship today. It's a delight to be able to worship with you every Lord's Day. And the delight keeps growing every week, not just because our worship team keeps growing as more people come on, shameless plug for those of you who play instruments and you know who you are, but it is a delight and it makes us long for the day when we will worship with the thousands of ten thousands of millions in glory, what a chorus that's going to be. So I trust you're longing for that day and today is but a small, tiny preview of what that will one day be like when we sing before the throne of King Jesus. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew 23. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, where the Holy Scriptures read, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for they for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we look to God's word this morning? Father, we come before you today, and again we ask that we would grow through the preaching of your word, that we would sit here today not with others in mind who need this, but realizing that this is for us as individuals. So help the truths of this text to penetrate our hearts. Help our eyes to see it with spiritual eyes, to see it in a brand new way. And Father, we pray for your leaders, for your pastors, myself included, Lord. I ask that we would live up to the expectations that you've given us. And we ask also, Father, that the congregation would hold leaders to that expectation, graciously, but in obedience as well. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Peacocking. You get another word definition this week. Strutting or showing off by bringing attention to your looks, attention to your clothing, wealth, intellect, status, or any other attribute. For some, their peacocking comes in the form of taking a perfectly beautiful vehicle and making it into a monstrosity that you can't help but look at. For some, it's over-the-top, way, way, way too much jewelry that makes you wear more jewels on you than the local jewelry store has in stock. And for some people, it's hair that makes even the 80s appear normal. The 80s were not normal. I'm sorry to break, to burst your bubble there, but they were not especially when it comes to peacocking hairdos. And though this term peacocking is a more recent term, what it describes is actually nothing new at all. For since the dawn of time, humanity has endeavored to put their positive and desirable attributes and qualities on display for everybody to mire. That's the human nature. It's what we do. For example, one of the ways this happened was during the Victoria era, and you probably know this, but it manifested in the size and grandeur of a woman's dress. And it became actually an immediate way of being able to see somebody and size them up and recognize their social class, their social status and their class in society. And so over time, the dresses got bigger and bigger and bigger until they eventually looked like they were a hot air balloon or a blimp of some kind. Speaking of getting longer and longer, one of the ways that many people have peacocked in human history wasn't through just what they wore, but it was through their titles that they bore. One guy, for example, started calling himself John, and the next guy said, well, John was a pretty good guy, but I'm going to be John the Great. So he would add that title to his name. The next guy would come along, 
and knowing he had to outdo him, he became John the Great and that Magnificent. And so then the next guy comes along and so forth, and it just keeps upping the ante until we get eventually titles that are so long that you literally need a scroll to read them all. And I'm not joking. Maybe you didn't know this, but Prince Philip, his royal title is 133 words long. That's not even the longest. For in the Ottoman Empire, they went even further with many of their rulers. And here's an example. I'm not going to read it all. Sovereign of the sublime house of Osman, Sultan of Sultans, commander of the faithful and successor of the prophet of the Lord of the universe, custodian of the holy cities of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Now that is some serious title peacocking going on. And here's the thing. You may not peacock with a ridiculous car or an even more ridiculous haircut. You may not peacock by wearing more jewelries than any person should. And you might not have a title that's 133 words long. But make no mistake, every single one of us is a peacocker at heart who is clinging on to some sort of title, maybe not in name, but in attributes or qualities that we look to in order to let others know just how great we are. And so in Matthew 23, we find exactly that. We find some religious peacockers who are quite impressed with themselves, quite impressed with themselves. And after all, why shouldn't be? Look at all the titles they held. Scribe, Pharisee, Master, Father, Teacher, Just look at who they are. They are highly esteemed religious leaders of Israel upon whom reverence and honor is deserved. And yet, in Matthew 23, we find Jesus giving them the exact opposite of this. He surmises their titles and he tells them that they do not deserve any praise and recognition. Actually, they deserve the opposite of this because of the titles they hold, they don't hold any of the titles that actually matter to make somebody great. And so we find Jesus in Matthew 23, as we'll see in the coming weeks, pronouncing seven woes of judgment upon them for the titles that they do not hold, but titles they should have held, should have held. And because they do not hold these titles, not only are they not great at all, but they're actually completely disqualified for leadership in God's kingdom. And not only that, they're completely disqualified for God's kingdom. That's how serious this is. For our passage this morning shows us to qualify for kingdom leadership, you have to hold at least these three titles, and here they are. To qualify for kingdom leadership, you must hold the title of genuine, secondly, the title of merciful, and third and finally, the title of humble. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23 and follow along. We don't put the slides that we're in for the sermon text on the wall. We expect you to bring your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, we'll give you one. But follow along, if you would, with me in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to begin, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. If there's one word that describes Jesus' criticism of the, of the religious establishment, what would that word be? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. This is a word that keeps popping up in Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders. And it's a word that we've seen before and have talked about. And what the word actually holds the connotation of is a play actor. Somebody who's just acting a part. And so in Matthew chapter 22... As we saw the last several weeks, we saw Jesus demask these hypocrites who were playing a part to reveal who they truly were. And by doing so, he also revealed their blatant and egregious hypocrisy. And in this process, not only did we see Jesus checkmate them over and over and over with these questions that they brought to him. And then finally, as we saw last week, with a question of his own, but he checkmated them easily and made them look foolish. And yet in their stubbornness in their pride, they refuse to admit defeat. They refuse to recognize the obvious truth. And the reason that is, is because though they play acted like they cared about God and following his laws, the truth was all they were doing was taking their religious position, taking God's laws and using them, using the titles they could gain from them in order to bolster their status before men. And someone who cares about the applause of man over the applause of God 
as Jesus points out, is absolutely disqualified for leadership in God's kingdom. And you think about the hypocrisy of it, they are taking their position, which is meant to lead others in worship of God as we get to know God more deeply and fully, and they're turning that to worship of themselves, which the Bible calls idolatry. So really, they were idol worshipers, and they didn't even realize it. That was actually one of the strongest commands in the Jewish mind, which was have no other gods before me. It was the start of the Ten Commandments. And yet they couldn't see their blatant hypocrisy, which disqualified them for kingdom leadership. And why is that? Why is it that they couldn't see the difference? Well, because of pride. They could not see who they truly were because of the titles they attached to their name, which were not true at all. And when it comes to leadership, there is a massive difference between true, genuine, and merciful and humble leadership and those who are just play acting. And so the question is, why is it we have a hard time telling the difference? Well, for one, it's because some of these play actors are really, really good at playing the part. They are. They say all the right things. They wear all the right things. They put on funny little hats and big robes that when they walk in, you're like, oh, they must be very important. And the reality is they look ridiculous, but they are really good at play acting and playing a part, which is total hypocrisy. In fact, when it comes to impersonating others, the internet's full of people who are really good at coming alongside of celebrities or famous people. And when they're side by side, sometimes I can't even tell the difference with how good they are at portraying themselves as someone who they're not. And yet when it comes to spiritual leaders, some of them are just as good as this at play acting and impersonations. So then the question is, does God leave us without any means whatsoever of detecting the real from the imposters? Are we just in the dark and we have to hope that it will turn out well? No, not at all. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us without a means of detecting these imposters. And so one of the ways that we detect these hypocritical play actors who have invaded spiritual leadership is by what Jesus says in verse three. Look at verse three with me. What do they do? They preach, but they do not practice. Simply said, what that means is they're not genuine. They're counterfeit bills. They talk the talk, but they do not walk the walk, which is why Jesus says, you will know them by their what? Fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And that's not legalism. That's just saying the fruit is a manifestation of what and who they truly are. Well, this sounds a bit judgy, doesn't it, Mr. Perfect Preacher Man? Pretty sure everyone sins, including you. In fact, I've seen it once or twice, if not more. How then can I stand here and say as an imperfect preacher that other preachers are disqualified for leadership? Who am I to say that? Well, to answer that question, I'll answer the question by saying I'm nobody. I have no authority whatsoever to tell you who I think is qualified and disqualified for kingdom leadership. My opinion on the matter matters, on the issue matters this much. And that's an exaggeration. It doesn't matter at all is the point. But I do know a guy and his authority and his opinion on the matter absolutely matters. For example, one guy with such authority is the name has the name of the apostle Paul, and he spoke the words of God as the Holy Spirit spoke through him in an authoritative way. So I want to read Titus 1, 5 through 9 for us. I'll put it up here for us. Here's what it says. Paul, Paul writing to young pastors, these are the pastoral epistles, okay? He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. What's an elder? It's a pastor. Pastor, elder, presbyter, bishop, all of it's the same office, It's the same person, position, emphasizing different aspects of that position. All right, so let's keep going. And here's the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 
Notice at the end of that text, what is it talking about? Is that a position of authority and responsibility? Absolutely it is. Our church leaders, it is their job to give sound instruction and doctrine and to rebuke any who contradict it. This is a very serious task. And in order to do that serious task, they have to meet the character qualifications in their life. They must have these qualifications. And if they don't, they're disqualified for ministry. Yes, they're guilty of sin like the rest of us are when we, are, when we fall short of these qualifications, which we should all try to live up to by the grace of God, walking in the spirit of God. But if a leader in the church does not meet these qualifications, they are absolutely disqualified for ministry. I don't care how much you like their sermons. I don't care how much they know their Bible. And it doesn't matter how many people they've even led to the Lord. It doesn't. The ends do not justify the means here. You must, as a leader of Christ's church, meet these qualifications or you are disqualified as a hypocrite. Look at verse 3 again of Matthew 23. One of the qualifications, as we just said, is for we must preach and practice. But these leaders, they do not practice, they only preach, which means they're play-acting hypocrites. And so consequently, those who are under that leadership have a responsibility to remove said leadership, to not follow, to not submit, to not obey. For to submit to a leader like that is actually participating in treason against King Jesus. That's how serious this is. Okay, let's qualify this now, hopefully without making it die the death of a million qualifications. We don't want to do that, but we do want to qualify this in a way that's helpful. Now, as a pastor, in these qualifications, you can read them here or in 1 Timothy 3, one of those qualifications is being hospitable, which means enjoying having people in your home. And not just the people you like, because the reality is there's a whole lot of people in our churches that we don't necessarily uh, See, to eye to, see eye to eye on, people that we just don't connect with easily, people that are harder to talk to, people that are more difficult, people whose sin even in their own lives makes it more difficult to get close to them. But nevertheless, leaders in Christ's church are supposed to be hospitable. They are supposed to enjoy having people in their homes. And if they don't, they are disqualified for, for, for ministry. Now, here's a question to qualify this. If I have a week as a pastor where I just don't feel hospitable. That was this last week. I was out sick for half the week. I didn't feel like having anybody into my home. Does that mean I am now, boom, you're disqualified, buddy. Go get a coding job. Is that what that means? Yes. (laughs) Good luck filling the pulpit. No, that's not what that means. Another thing, as a pastor, this verse says that I need to manage my household well and my children are to be submissive to my parental authority, which is on loan from God's authority. So if they're rejecting my authority and living in rebellion and they don't obey, then they're also rejecting God's authority and they're rebelling against him. So if one of my kids, not if, when, has a bad Sunday where they have to be taken out and disciplined for disobeying their mother, for making noise and not sitting still, okay, does that mean that I need to resign and go get a coding job? That's what we're talking about here. That's the question at hand that we need to decide. How does this, what does this look like? How does this play out in real life? Now, what if you find someone in the community who has nothing to say about negative things about your pastor? Well, I guarantee you there's people in this community that you can find who will have nothing but negative to say about me. Does that mean that I am not well thought of by outsiders as this as these instructions here qualify and command a pastor to have? Does that mean I'm disqualified? Is it coding job time? You see the dilemma here? How do we qualify this so we, on one hand, hold our leaders to the expectations, but also don't neglect them to the point where where we don't hold them, but at the same time, here's what I'm trying to say, at the same time, not neglect them, but also, what's the opposite of that? Expect perfection. Thank you. It wasn't coming to me. Expect perfection. Where's the middle ground of wisdom in all these things? Well, I think it's this. We need to view these as qualities, not perfect binary quantities. Does that make sense? They're qualities, descriptive qualities, but not perfect 100% binary, ones or zeros, yes or no, quantities, which means a pastor is going to sin in one of these areas, and it doesn't necessarily mean they need to go find a different career and a different job to step down from their position. Now, 
at the same time, it might be, right? Like there is some binariness to these qualifications here. For example, either you are a man who has one wife or you aren't. There's no subjectivity to that, right? It's not like, oh, I didn't realize I had seven wives. Oops. You know, like, you know if you're meeting that qualification or you're not. And actually what that talks about there is being a one-woman man is really what it is in the Greek, which simply means you're known for faithfulness to your wife. You're not known for being like, oh man, that guy's, he's too flirty with the women. Watch him. No, if that's a pastor's reputation, they're disqualified, absolutely disqualified. And in a binary way, they're disqualified if they have more than one wife. So some of these are binary, some of these aren't, as we just said. Um, if you've been a Christian for about a week, are you qualified for pastoral ministry? No, you're not. What about seven years? Well, see, we have the upfront binary qualification, which goes into the, okay, well, how long is that? It doesn't tell us. And that's where we need wisdom then to apply it after that. Now, at the same time, you can't look at your pastor and say, yeah, he's definitely a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us, but praise God in his imperfection, he models the qualities of Christ in a way that I should emulate. You should say that actually, okay? That's, that's the idea we're trying to get at here. And can I just say, for the record, I don't know who picked this text, but I'm not happy with him this morning because this is a passage that I can tell you to preach as the pastor makes you quite uncomfortable. And why? Because every pastor is a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us. Every pastor who approaches these texts should feel a heavy weight of burden and responsibility that causes them to examine themselves and say, am I falling short? Am I meeting Christ's expectations? The reality is if any preacher could get up here and preach the qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 without feeling uncomfortable at all, they need to get out of the pulpit, plain and simple. If they can stand up and say, man, I've got this on lockdown. Let me show you how it's all done. They are clueless. They're like the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, because we are all sinners saved by grace. Yes, that we aspire to a noble task, but it is a task that demands the strictest of qualifications that cannot and must not be taken lightly. For the task is no light task. And what is the task? Give instruction and sound doctrine to rebuke those who contradict it, which is basically describing shepherding the sheep of Christ's church, sheep whom Christ laid down his life for out of his great love for. Now, spoiler alert here. But in the next several weeks, we are going, not counting Christmas, we're going to take a break for Christmas Day, but we're going to be looking at Matthew 23 and the standards for leadership. And just a little roadmap here of where we're headed in the coming months is we're doing so with the goal of ordinating new leaders in our church, new deacons to serve on our deacon team. And if you keep reading in these passages, you'll find qualifications, not just for elders, but for deacons, which make up the second office of a church. And like the office of elder, the office of deacon also comes with high qualifications. And we must take those qualifications just as seriously. And so as we approach this incredibly important task in the life of our church, I'm going to ask you all to do some homework. Write down 1 Timothy 3, write down Titus 1. And if you want to do bonus points, read the whole books. But look at these passages and examine what the qualifications are for leadership so that as we approach this very important task, we can do so trying to follow our Lord's will. So be praying about that, be studying that, be looking to that and asking that God would help us to identify those who are genuine, those who are merciful, those who meet the qualifications as outlined in his instructions. For not only must they be genuine, but they must hold the title of merciful, which leads us to our second point. To qualify for the kingdom, for leadership in the kingdom, you must hold the title of genuine, but second off the title of merciful. Look at verse, 20, verse four with me. Why are these religious leaders not merciful? Well, because they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. When it comes to obeying God's laws, if you remember, in many ways, the Pharisees were extremely hardcore about following God's laws. Sure, they were hypocrites, no questions about it, but they were hardcore, stringent hypocrites, at least. 
Okay, because what they did, if you remember, is they took God's laws, the Pharisees especially, they took God's laws and they said, we got to follow these laws. So you know what we're going to do? Those are really hard to follow. So let's follow, make some laws around those laws to prevent people from breaking God's laws. And so they built these, we're going to call them Torah fences, okay, because the Torah, right, God's law, they built Torah fences around God's law in order to try to protect people from sinning. And if you know anything about these ridiculous man-made laws that they set up, you'll know just how difficult, just how heavy of burdens these were on people's lives. And we saw this back in Matthew 12, when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And what happened? The religious leaders, were they happy about it? They're like, oh, merciful, wonderful, great. No, they're mad. They're like, you are not of God. You broke the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say to them? He quotes the Old Testament, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy, not sacrifice. And yet for them, it was all sacrifice. And the sacrifice that they were actually expecting was everybody else's sacrifice. You all sacrifice and do all these things. We're the religious leaders. Do as we say, not as we do, because they were hypocrites. And yet sadly, how often are churches guilty of tying up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and then lay them on people's shoulders and they do nothing at all to help them. They come along with their little old man-made laws about what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, what to watch, and they say a good Christian does this. And if you wanna be in our elite little club here, you'll do these things too. And they'll say a good Christian doesn't do that. And before you know it, you've got all sorts of clubs that are coming up, that are being put together with their own little Torah fences. Sometimes, and there's a million ways this happens. One way, and this isn't a bad thing to read through the Bible in a year, but sometimes that becomes a Torah fence. And so you get the group where it's like, we read through our Bible in a year. And that people who do it in two years, they're not quite as religious as we are. Let me tell you, it's okay, but not as, not as good as we are. You've got the homeschool Torah fencers competing with the Christian school Torah fencers. You've got the this Bible translation Torah fencers with that Bible translation Torah fencers. These instruments versus that instruments. And before you know it, Everybody's running around out of breath with heavy burdens that they've been tied, that have been tied onto them, and they're just moments away from spiritual collapse. And in the midst of all these Torah fences being built up, we find hurting people, people who are suffering, people who are in pain, people whose marriages are falling apart, showing up at our churches saying, Will somebody just give me, even lend a finger to help me with this? Parents who are clueless how to raise up their children to obey and follow the Lord, to respect authority. Teens who are facing a godless world who have more questions than there appear to be answers for. They're not rebellious per se. They just want to know. They have serious questions. And if we say, oh, you just need to have faith. You just need to believe. Don't, a good Christian doesn't ask that. We're putting heavy burdens on them. And all of these people who are suffering under the weight of these heavy burdens, are simply saying, will someone, will anyone lend me a a finger to help me with these burdens that I bear? And sadly, too often, the religious leaders in our church, they see a person like this, as the scribes and the Pharisees did. And they not only do not lift a finger to help them, but they come along and they say, man, you're having a tough time there. Here, let me help you carry these. (laughs) It's totally unloving. But as the prophet Hosea says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and, not, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. If we're going to be agents of mercy, church, we need to point people to the God of mercy and reflect that mercy in our merciful behavior upon them, not by heaping heavy burdens on them. And let me remind you what Jesus said about these heavy burdens back in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The contrast then between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day couldn't be any more different, could it? Night and day difference. And yet, how sadly is it when the leaders of Christ's very own church, the people of Christ's church, are no better? For not only are we often unwilling to lift a finger even to help, but we cause harm by binding people's conscience 
with man-made laws that we think are good, that we think are good practical advice for Christian living, but God didn't say that. We are not to go beyond what is written, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Why? Because we'll become puffed up. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. Don't try to dig into those, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That is where we hold to truth at. Not by our reason, not by our own pragmatic advice, but we follow God's word together. And if we don't, we are going to cause harm to people by binding their consciences. And as we do so, it's going to lead us to be not agents of mercy, but agents of pain, of suffering and burden. And why do people do this? As we see with the religious leaders, they do this not to exalt God, but to exalt themselves, which leads us to our final and most difficult title of them all. To qualify for kingdom leadership, you must hold the title of genuine, but also the title of merciful. Look at verses five through seven with me. They do all their deeds. Why? To be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Here Jesus is telling us that the religious leaders use their religion as a means of peacocking their greatness. That's really what this is. They're using obedience to God, not as worship of God, but as a way of glorifying themselves. And this is actually a sad and twisted monument to the epitome of human hypocrisy. It's exactly what it is. So how do they do this? Okay, well, to understand that, we need to understand a little bit of the cultural background here on what these phylacteries and fringes actually were. Okay, and what were they? First off, the phylacteries, these were basically small leather boxes that the Pharisees placed portions of the Old Testament scripture in, and they literally wore these boxes around their foreheads and their arms. It's kind of a ridiculous picture when you think about it, isn't it? And why did they do this? Well, because of passages like Deuteronomy 6, 8, which say this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. There's numerous passages. Let me read one more. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Look, I'm about as literalist as they come when it comes to understanding the Bible. But even a simple old literalist like me can tell when the Bible is literally speaking metaphorically. That makes sense? Okay, this is literally metaphor that is being used to make a clear point. Okay, and what did they do with this? They turned it into ridiculously rigid literalism. So that's the phylacteries. Phylacteries, there we go. How about the fringes or what we often call in some translations call them the tassels? Well, if you remember, we've come across these tassels before in Matthew's gospel, and these were basically blue and white tassels that were worn on the four corners of the Jewish male garment, and they were basically visual reminders of God's law and the necessity of following God's law. And as we saw back in Matthew 9 and Matthew 14, Jesus likely wore these too. Let me read this, 37, uh, Numbers 15, 37 through 41. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. For I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So what this basically was, the modern day equivalent, remember the WWJD bracelets from the 90s? Okay, maybe one or two of you still wear them, but they're, they're out of fashion here. But that's basically the idea. It was their form of the WWJD bracelets. Now, it wasn't Jesus because they, they didn't accept Jesus, but you get the idea. It was what would God do? What would God have me to do is what these were reminders for. But what the religious leaders did was 
They basically went big Victorian dress mode here and they made these things ridiculously huge so that you couldn't help but notice them. And why did they do that? To show off. They were showing off. They were peacocking. Another way their egotism manifested was by loving to sit in the place of honor at feasts, to have the best seats in the synagogue. And that's pretty self-explanatory stuff. I don't think I need to expound on that too much. They wanted recognition. They wanted to be thought of as high, as superior, as important. They loved greetings. They loved being called rabbi, which means what? Teacher. And this is all because they are religious narcissists whose true God is themselves. And sadly, they take their religiosity and they turn that as a means of worshiping themselves. And yet how are leaders in the kingdom to approach titles and positions of high esteem? Look with me at verses eight through 12. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So far, all of these verses are pretty straightforward until these ones. And these ones definitely need some explanation here. Because without understanding both the immediate context in which Jesus is speaking to and the larger New Testament context— we're going to turn these instructions here of Jesus into our own pious Torah fence. Think about it. We actually will be like, oh, we don't call people by their names. Like we're the people who don't have titles. And then boom, brand new Torah fence set up. And it totally misses the heart of what Jesus is getting after. All right. So we don't like Torah fences. Those are man-made laws, not God's laws. And so let's take these man-made laws that we have from our culture, from our background, and let's put them right in the special bin where they're supposed to go, which is called the garbage can. Okay, we're not going to use those. Let's look at God's word and see what Jesus is actually saying so we might apply it rightly in a way that doesn't erect Torah offenses around our heart. So in order to understand this, what do we need to understand? We need to understand, first off, how rabbis and teachers worked back in Jesus' day. If we don't understand that, we're going to make a big mess of this. Okay, and the best way that I can super oversimplify this is it was an honor culture system. It was, it was an honor culture system, okay? Rabbis, who would they quote? other rabbis. And they became in the school of this rabbi, and -and so-and-so was in the school of this rabbi, and it became this big old tribal system almost where people would pick certain rabbis that they identified with whom they looked to as an authority, and they would base their authority upon that. But in Christ's church, is that how it works? Not even close. Not even close. As your teacher, as your pastor, am I your authority? No. I'm not your authority. I'm not your authority. And it's sad because a lot of pastors out there will say, you have to follow what I say because I'm the authority, buddy. You reject me. You're touching God's anointed and you're going to have, I don't know what's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen to you. This happens all the time and it's ridiculous. It's totally unbiblical. I am not your authority. So then if you and I disagree on what spiritual vitamins, to borrow last week's illustration, if you and I disagree on what are the best spiritual vitamins or the literal vitamins, we can have a conversation on that too. If you disagree, it doesn't matter. I have no authority to tell you one way or the other on these things. I don't get to come in and say, I have the authority to tell you what Bible translation is the best, what you should wear to church, all these tertiary issues that God has not spoken on. I am not to go beyond what is written. I don't get to say as your pastor, you need to submit to my authority, whether you agree or not, for I'm the Lord's anointed. It's not true. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees, they embraced this sort of rabbinical nonsense. That's what they did. The truth is, as your pastor, the only authority that I have are when I speak the words of the true authority, which is who? Jesus Christ. That's it. And where do we find his words? It's in his book, his perfectly inspired book, which he gave to us to follow as our authority in life. The Bible is our only source of faith and practice. That's part of the Baptist acronym, Surprise Baptist Church. But you know what? That is what we try to orientate our church around. Not the words of Zach Broom. He's just a sinful man. And some of you know that better than others, i.e. my family. But the authority is Christ's authority. And to the degree to which I stand and speak his words as his ambassador, you have a responsibility to follow that. Not because of me, but because of him. 
This is a great and heavy task. It's a task that should humble every preacher to stand before the people of God and articulate. And we say it's a heavy task because James 3.1 reminds us, he says this, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, and why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now the question here is, can you call me Pastor Zach? Can you? Or do we need to put up a Torah fence that says, don't you ever do that? (laughs) Honestly, for the record, I don't care. I don't care if you want, the only thing you're not allowed to call me is Pastor Broom. That's my dad's name. And every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. What's going on? You know, don't do that. That's the only thing I have a strong opinion on and I don't have an authoritative word, but just don't do it. Here's the point. That's not the issue Jesus is addressing here. He's not saying don't refer to anyone in your church as, son, as a Sunday school teacher. Like, can you imagine how weird that would be if we tried to do church that way? It's like, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to Eagle's Nest. Who's the pastor there? Oh, mm, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't use that word. Okay, well, who preaches on Sunday? Oh, Zach does that most of the time. Yep. Oh, so he's your pastor. Oh, mm-mm, Jesus says don't do that. Right? Like, that's ridiculous. We're putting up Torah fences, okay? It's... Let's put the rigid literalism away here, okay? When Jesus says, I am a door, that doesn't mean he's made of wood and has a knob, okay? We can be literalists who understand figurative speech and can actually get the meaning behind what is being said. So either way, for the record, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It's whatever you want to do. But the truth is, I am Zach. Just as much as you are John or Jane or whatever your name is, we are equal brothers in Christ, I don't have a special status. I don't have a special phone in my office, which I pick up and I'm like, all right, Lord, let's talk. No, I don't have that. We're all priests. Some people are like, oh, are you a priest? I'm like, Mm-mm, nope, not at all. I mean, yes, but no different than anybody else. We're all priests in Christ, but I'm not a special priestly class above everybody else. The New Testament is full of examples where people are referred to with their position within the church. Right? So I said a second ago, we need to understand the immediate context that was going on in Jesus's day when he was addressing this whole status thing of teacher, but also we need to understand the New Testament context. And in the New Testament context, we see Paul introduce himself in some letters as what? Hey, I'm Paul. Let me tell you something. No, I am Paul, an apostle of Christ. See, he's connecting what he's about to say and the words he's saying with the authority and the position he has in Jesus. Peter does the same thing. Specific pastors are referred to as being pastors. And it wasn't that they forgot what Jesus said here. It was that they understood his point. And this is his point. It's very simple. Do not lord yourself as an authority above others. Don't do it. You're not an authority. You may be in a position of authority, but the degree to which the people under your authority have a responsibility to follow you is the degree by which you follow and speak the words of Christ as revealed in his word. For as Jesus says, there is one teacher, the Christ. There is one father who is in heaven and there is one authoritative God who has spoken and it's not you and it's definitely not me. Okay? So am I a pastor and teacher of God's word? Yes, on one level I am. But another level, no, I'm not. Because everything that I teach, hear me when I say this, everything that I teach that is authoritative is only a reflection of Christ's words, not mine. I like this expression that you've probably heard before, but it says, it is but one blind beggar telling another blind beggar where he found food. That's my job. A blind beggar, by the mercy and grace of God, pointing other blind beggars to where the source of spiritual food and nourishment is. And it's not me. It's Christ. And if I forget that, not only will I become puffed up and arrogant, but I'll become unmerciful. I'll become abusive to the sheep. And the reality is I need to be the opposite of that. I need to be merciful. And this actually, this truth should lead me and all pastoral leaders to become joyously humble. And why? Because like the rest of humanity, I was blind and yet now I see. And in the grace and mercy that I've been given, I've been given the remarkable and heavy privilege of pointing others to where they too might find food and healing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast 
as if you did not receive it. I mentioned a moment ago how as a good Israelite male, Jesus was likely wearing these tassels. And in fact, it was these tassels, as we see throughout Matthew's gospel, which people cling on to for healing. Remember, what would the tassels represent? A reminder to obey God's law, to obey it perfectly. Be holy, for I am holy, God says. And it was these tassels which represent that obedience in which the blind and the sick would reach out and grab onto to receive healing. What a picture that is of what our faith is. What a picture of what the gospel is. For Christ is the only one who could perfectly obey the stringent commands of God's law. Christ is the only one who perfectly qualifies as an authoritative voice amongst humanity. And when we reach out and grab onto his perfect righteousness by faith, we grab his tassels, we too can be healed and saved. Matthew twenty three eleven through 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When Christ says that the greatest among you shall be your servant, you know the awesome thing about this? He's practicing what he's preached and boy, did he practice what he preached. Not only did he set aside the glory of heaven to be born of men, Not only was he genuinely humble as he was willing to even wash our feet, it's remarkable, but he also went on to bring us the mercy of God by dying for us upon the cross, which was much, much beyond lifting a finger, wasn't it? But because he did this, as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, therefore God has highly esteemed him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what an example and what a reason we have to follow in his footsteps in humility ourselves, knowing that at the right time, he will exalt us, but not in a way that takes glory from God, nor in a way that turns us into pathetic narcissists, right? He does so in a way that leads to glory to God and joy, unspeakable joy for us. And what other exaltation would we want? All other exaltation will destroy us. It will corrupt us. It will turn us into hideous nightmares, just like what happened here with the religious leaders. For those who do not humble themselves, those who usurp the one and true teacher, and consequently assert the one and true God, the Father of heaven, there will not be exaltation coming for them, will there? No. For they will be brought to the lowest low under the divine weight of perfect justice, upon which at that point, no finger in heaven will lift to do even anything to reduce that judgment. And so to those here today who are living as rebels of Christ, humble yourself. Humble yourself before the one who humbled himself to save you and know that he then will exalt you. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then two verses later, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we know we do so by simply seeing Christ reaching out grabbing his tassels by faith, accepting the grace and mercy of God and knowing that when we do so, we will be purified. Our hearts will be spotless, as white as snow. It's a marvelous thing. This is the story of Christmas. It's not about the presents, not about the Christmas trees. All that can just be pictures if we look at it rightly, but it has nothing to do with the gospel if we forget this. We miss the meaning of Christmas. And so we know that we can draw near to him because he first drew near to us. I put this song in here. I'm going to read a verse from it. And now I'm not so sure why I put it here, but I still think I'm going to read it. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity. Oh, what a mystery and meekness, meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. Meekness and majesty. You'll find it nowhere else. 
you will never find such a great conquering king, a powerful king who humbled himself like Jesus did for the sake of his love for us. And so may we as a church, as brothers and sisters in the family of God, as co-equals in our heir to the Lord Jesus, walk together in humility as we worship, as we serve, and we learn from the great teacher who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this text. And Father, I just pray that you would empower a sinner like me to meet these qualifications. There's no doubt it's impossible to do it in per- to do it perfectly. But I ask that by your grace and the prayers of your saints for me, that one day when I stand before you and give an account, that I would do so in a way where I do not shy back and feel shame. But I look to Christ and I praise you for the work that you've done in me for your people. So I just pray that that would be the reality. Father, I pray for the one here today who, like the scribes and the Pharisees, are simply using their Christianity as a means of exalting themselves, as getting notoriety and attention from others. We all struggle with it. So we ask that we would fight it, that we would kill our sin, that we would kill our pride. Show us the ways in our life where we're doing this and we don't even realize it. So, Father, we ask that when people see our church, they would say, boy, they're sinners, but my, are they merciful and humble. My, are they loving? And then when they say that, we can point them to the merciful and humble, loving one, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we can point them to how just reaching out once by grace through faith, grabbing his tassels is all it takes to make the unrighteous righteous. So Father, we pray for this Christmas season. We pray that we would not waste it. We would pray that with all the busyness of the coming weeks that we wouldn't reflect, that we wouldn't fail to remember and forget the true meaning of Christmas. So Father, we pray for those who are lost. Help us to be light in the darkness. Help us to be agents of mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing.